The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, today might be a little interesting in, in, in a variety of ways. I, I have read the book of Ruth several times, but I've never preached through it. I've heard it preached. I've not preached through it myself. And I was so pleasantly surprised as I read through it to study it in order to teach it, not just devotionally. Ruth is a very interesting book within the Old Testament. It, it falls between Judges and 1 Samuel. And so even that, even where it is, is interesting. It's a unique setting. Ruth bridges this gap of a nation that's in a spiritual valley and the birth of King David. It falls right in between there. It's um, most likely, and I say that because it's not definite, but around 1200 B.C., somewhere in that time period. But if you take a moment to read, like if, you're, if you've turned in your Bibles, and I hope you have, to the book of Ruth, if you were to just flip one page backward and look at the very last verse of the book of Judges, it's Judges 21-25, you want to see something that's ominous, that's just, wow, that's not good at all. Read the last verse of the book of Judges, which precedes our study in the book of Ruth. The Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, I read that, and I don't know about you, but it kind of sounds a lot like the days in which we're currently living. And although the book of Ruth is only four chapters, 85 verses, it gives us a tremendous look forward into God's story of love and redemption. A good friend of mine that I went to seminary with uh, up at Southeastern, he, he wrote a little book uh, called Bethlehem's Redeemer. Seeing Jesus in Ruth. Now imagine that. Way back in the Old Testament. Seeing Je See, Jesus is all in the whole Bible. He's in the Old Testament. And Daniel, he wrote this statement in this book. He said, in the midst of moral failure and famine, God has not stopped working. And the promise of a son to rescue his people has not been abandoned. God mercifully provides to redeem a family and ultimately all of his people through an unlikely son born of the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem. See, this book of Ruth is set in Bethlehem of Judah. Isn't that interesting? You can already see you know, where this is going. You can already see the foreshadowing of where was Jesus born. The prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, said about Bethlehem, you're not the least in Judah because out of you is going to come a Savior. And it prophesies Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Ruth, I'm praying that we'll all start to see with so much more clarity the manner in which Jesus, the Messiah, is the central subject of the entire Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Now, I know that may sound a little odd, because normally when we want to talk about Jesus, where do we go? Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the four Gospels, right? We're talking about Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus is the subject of the Bible, not just the New Testament. And so I pray we're going to see that 
uh, even more clearly. Because we can't afford to miss this important and profound truth. This is also from my friend Daniel, uh, Daniel Palmer who wrote this book. The book of Ruth recounts the story of a family that initially abandons the land of the Lord's promises and His people because of a famine. Yet, by the story's end, that family is miraculously redeemed when God provides a miracle son in Bethlehem. There's a lot of symbolism here in this book, a lot of good for us to see. So let's read. I'm going to read Ruth 1. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, 22 verses, about a fourth of, our, of, our, of the whole book. And uh, we'll, this sets the stage for the story. So let's read. You can follow along as I read. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that, she was determined to go with her. She said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred up because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Father, I pray to you in Jesus' name that you would speak so clearly to us today. Help us to see what you want us to see here in your word. And Lord, I pray you would give me boldness to preach the truth and yet humility to know how desperate I am and how dependent I am on you and your word. So Lord, I pray, uh, don't let me mess it up. In Jesus' name, amen. And there's a few things in this text that it seems like so much to take in, but I'm going to try to, to very briefly just set the stage here what, what God has told us about this story because there's some details in this story that we have to make sure we take note of. And so before I give you some points here in the text, I want to just give you an overview. You see that the, the family has left the land of Judah. That's like the first main detail. They're in, you know what Judah is, part of the land of Canaan. It's part of the promised land. That's God's gift to His people. So they left. Because things got tough. So I want you to ponder. As we, as we go through this, just ponder a few things. Why would they leave God's promised land? What thought process would lead them to do that? They're leaving God's people. They're leaving God's land. And they're going. Where are they going? Moab. They're going to the land of the enemy. One of the, one of the conquered people that God moved out so they could move in, and now they're going, it's like, well, we, we just fought this war, and we just were victorious. Why don't we go back over there and live with the people we just beat? Makes no sense, right? So as soon as they get to... Moab, things start to go wrong. People start dying. I, I, that's why the name of the sermon today is From Famines to Funerals. That's pretty much what happened. A famine caused them to leave, then the husband died. Then the two sons died. And so now you have a mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law, and everybody is gone around them. And, and then she finds out, oh, I hear there's food back in Bethlehem. Why don't we just go back? Well, she could go back, but the other two, they had never been there to begin with. So it wouldn't be returning for them. It would be going out of their home to somewhere else. So you see this real drama that's unfolding here and, and setting the stage for what God's going to do. So I want to just set that brief summary in front of you so you can kind of know the whole story and, and start considering things as we go through here. So the first thing that's important for us to see in the first five verses here of Ruth is this, beware of unbelief. Beware of unbelief. And that means running away from our problems because, see, they were in God's place with God's people and God's provision. It's the one place that, um, as a matter of fact, uh, this is a, a place where uh, God is going to bless His people. As a matter of fact, it's uh, Daniel Palmer, again, who said the famine at the beginning of the book of Ruth is a wake-up call from the Lord 
a call for His people to stop filling themselves with self and to seek their satisfaction in Him. The evidence of relying upon the Lord would be remaining in God's land. To stay would take real faith because famines are awful. So what's happening here, what these people are doing, kind of reminds you of that last verse of Judges, right? There's no kings. Everybody just did what they thought was right. So this family, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, leave God's promised land because things are difficult. That makes no sense. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He said, they're forsaking the only place on earth that God has specifically given to His people, the place in which He's promised to bless them, and they're leaving that place. That, that doesn't sound like a good plan. And so Elimelech is married to Naomi. They have these two sons, and they're going on, the Bible says, a sojourn which is typically a short-term trip, but it turns out they stay there almost 10 years. About 10 years. That's not a short trip. So they're leaving God's land, going to enemy territory, and staying there for about 10 years. Now, as soon as they get there, you see the first thing that happens. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with her two sons in the land of the enemy. So the two sons married women from Moab. Anybody got a problem with that? God's chosen people just married two women from the enemy. They weren't, that was a strict commandment. You don't, you, and, and why is it a commandment? Because they worship other gods. See, it wasn't because they were different or they lived somewhere different or because they just didn't get along. It wasn't any of that. The restriction was because they don't worship Yahweh, the God of the universe. It was a spiritual conflict. And so they married wives uh, from Moab, which was a violation of the plans God had for His people. So the, the ladies' names were Orpah and Ruth. And you see what happened immediately after that? See, th there's a cause and effect going on here. The, the man leads his family out of God's place, and as soon as they get there, he dies. The sons marry women from uh, the territory that doesn't worship God. They, they worship other gods, idols. And you know what happened to them as soon as they did that? They died. Leaving three widows. One, a mother-in-law, to two foreign women. Foreign God-worshiping women. So here's some key thoughts before we move on to the middle. The name Elimelech means my God is king. He didn't really live up to that name, did he? Because if his God was king, he'd have stayed right there in Bethlehem in Judah where he should have. He led his family to do the same thing. The, the name Naomi means pleasant. Things aren't too pleasant for her right now, are they? Because they disobeyed God and his plan. This is maybe the oddest part. You know what their son's names mean? Mylon means sickling. Like he's just always sick. Kilion means weakling. And now they've all passed. Elimelech disobeyed God and now he passed. Mylon and Kilion disobeyed God, now they passed. And now you have three widows. 
Oh, by the way, you know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. And, and they left the house of bread to go to the land of the enemy. See, there's no such thing as coincidence. So they are running away from problems, running out of God's place, away from God's people to go to enemy territory. Number two, not only should we be aware of unbelief, we should be aware of deception, trying to cover up our mistakes. So you see in verse 6 and the following verses, all of a sudden, Naomi thinks it's a good idea to leave and return and says she heard that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she left when there was a famine and she heard there was food again, so now she wants to go back. So she departed. So this is interesting to me because the word, this is, there's a couple of words here we need to, to make sure we take note of. The Hebrew word, if you look in verse 6, says she arose that she might return from the land of Moab. Okay? The Hebrew word there is the word uh, for repentance. It's, it's, it means to turn because, you know, that's what the word repent means, to turn. Okay, so this is the Hebrew counterpart to the New Testament word that, that means repent. It's repentance, return. See, God had visited his people. Now there's bread in the house of bread. There's bread back there in Bethlehem. So Naomi decides she wants to go back. And initially, her two daughters-in-law went with her. We're not really sure for how long, but the Bible says that they all got up to go. Uh, there in verse 7, it says her daughters-in-law were with her. They went on their way, but then Naomi tells, uh, she tells her daughters-in-law to return to their home. It's almost as if she's saying, you don't need to come and, and go back to, to God's place where I'm going. You need to stay here with your foreign gods and, and stay in the enemy territory. This is your home. But they have different responses. See, here's another key word in verse 8. Naomi says, it's almost like she's asking God to deal kindly with them even though they don't worship that God. Isn't that interesting? The word she uses there when she says deal kindly, it's a Hebrew word. It's a very important Hebrew word, kesed. That word means faithful love. It's kindness mercy, loyalty even. It's the same love God shows to His people by sending Jesus to redeem us from our sins. So Naomi wishes them the best. She encourages them to stay in Moab. And she gives a pretty convincing argument. She gives a summary of what it's going to cost them to follow her in repentance. And so one of them eventually gives in and goes back to the familiar hometown of Moab. Ruth, however, is not going to listen. She's going to follow Naomi back to Judah. And so what is interesting about this is that somewhere in this backstory that we're not privileged to know, everything that maybe happened behind the scenes, you have to understand what has happened behind the scenes because Ruth is from Moab, which is a non-God-worshipping land. But now she's all of a sudden been inserted into a family of God worshipers. 
And so somewhere in there, when you see what Ruth says in verses 16 and 17, she says, don't, don't tell me to leave. Don't tell me to turn back. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to stay where you stay. But then look at the end of verse 16. Your people are going to be my people, and your God is my God. You know what that means? Ruth got saved. Ruth is now leaving, deserting the, the false gods of Moab. She wants to go and worship the God that Naomi worships. She wants to worship the Almighty God. Matter of fact, when Naomi refers to God and what He's done in her life, she uses that familiar Hebrew term, El Shaddai. You heard that? It was a song by Amy Grant years ago called El Shaddai. You know what it means? Almighty God. Almighty God. In other words, in control, all-powerful, almighty God. And so that's the God now that Ruth is drawn to worship. She wants to go back. She, she knows if she doesn't follow Naomi back to Judah, then she's not going to have access to that almighty God that she's observed and heard about and learned about and now embraced. She won't have that. So she don't want to stay in Moab. She wants to go where God is. And at that time, she's going to the land of Judah. She's going to the very place where the Redeemer is going to be born. She doesn't know that at, at that time. But that's where she's going. So even though Naomi gives this convincing argument, Ruth is not having it. So Naomi finally resigns herself to the fact that Ruth is going to come along. So it says there in the Bible in verse 18, she, uh, she says no more to her. So we have to understand there's some deception going on in Naomi's heart. What's good for Ruth is not so much for Naomi because you see what she's doing. You want to see a little underlying, uh, underlying fact about maybe why Naomi wouldn't want her daughters-in-law to come back to Bethlehem and Judah with her? What would that put on full display? Oh, these, these girls aren't from Judah. They're from Moab. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. We're not supposed to do that. I know the Bible is very explicit. God was real clear. Don't marry people that are not God worshipers from our, our tribe, our, our group. But she was trying to cover that up. See, if they didn't come back with her, then she wouldn't have to tell anybody what they had done. It was bad enough they left Judah to go to the land of the enemy. Now she's coming back as a widow, but she's coming back with another another uh, passenger on the trip, so to speak. And that's going to make it very clear that they have not followed God at all. So she was trying to cover up some things. But nevertheless, she understands Ruth is not going to be persuaded, so she says no more to her. But we can't miss that little passage there in verses 16 and 17 that Ruth says, your God is my God. And by the way, if you look in verse 17, when she says, where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried, thus may the Lord, the Lord, you know what word she uses there? Yahweh, the covenant God, the covenant name of God. That's the word that's used right there. So she's been introduced to the God of all the universe. And so Ruth is going back, and she's, assimilating into a new people. 
But our, our um, warning is to beware of unbelief, beware of deception, things that have to do with the sin that is kind of undergirding this story. Finally, verse 19 to 22, number three, beware of bitterness. Beware of bitterness, blaming God for our troubles. You see, when Naomi comes back, it causes quite the little scene in town because it's been about ten years. And when they left, it was Elimelech, Naomi, and two boys, uh, or two young men. When they come back, it's just Naomi and a Moabite woman. And so the Bible says all the women, now I'm not going to say anything about that, but it does say all the women were, were talking. Y'all all right? Is everybody, everybody okay? I see some, see some little smirks out there like, what are you trying to say? I'm not trying to say anything. I'm trying to say, that's what the Bible says. It says the women said. It doesn't say the people said. It says the women said. So y'all just draw your own conclusions. But they said, is this Naomi? Ten years have passed. She's coming back as a widow. She's got another young lady with her who's also a widow, a daughter-in-law. And they say, is this Naomi? But look at what she says to them in verse 20. Don't call me that. You remember what her name means? Pleasant. She's not feeling very pleasant. She's got internal conflict going on because of the sin in her heart that she has tried to cover up. She's got... Uh, issues going on because she feels like everything has been taken from her. So she said, don't call me that. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitter. Bitter. And here's why she says that. Call me Mara for the Almighty. There's the word again, El Shaddai. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. That's the word Yahweh there, Lord. Who does it sound like is at fault here? Kind of sound like God's on the hook for this, right? The Almighty did this to me. The Lord did this to me. Brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord, there it is the word again, Yahweh, has witnessed against me and the Almighty, El Shaddai, has afflicted me. So in two verses, four times, she's called out God as the cause of her difficulty. Not her own sin, not the sin of her husband, the, the poor leadership, the forsaking of the land of God, the forsaking of the people of God, the forsaking of the commands of God in marrying outside of the people of God. None of those things have anything to do with her trouble, right? You see, you see where this is going? Bitterness, blaming God for her troubles. This is... Uh, interesting because Naomi's return has made a tremendous impact in the land of Judah. And, and on the other side of that, you know, repentance is a powerful thing because it causes an uproar, because it's a return, it's a turning from something bad to something good, specifically turning from sin, turning to Jesus. And so that's a big deal, right? Repentance is a big deal. So can you imagine this return in a spiritual sense? Like let's, let's say um, something like that were to happen in our context. Someone who had been far from God, maybe for years, maybe about ten years, 
And they return. They repent. They turn away from that and they come back to where God's people are. They come back to the church. They come back to hear the Word of God. They come back to enjoy the fellowship of God's people. They've repented. They've turned from their sins and come back to Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says it, it takes only one conversion for a church to begin to believe again in the regenerating power of God. The impact of one individual coming to faith can transform the whole community. Don't you remember what Jesus said? I tell you there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who have no need of repentance. One person turning from sin and being gloriously set free and saved by the power of Christ that can change a whole community, not just a church. When... All right, I've got to drink some water before I say this. When's the last time you saw somebody get saved? I'm not talking about heard about it. I'm talking about when's the last time you saw somebody get saved? Do you remember how that felt? Let me ask you a little bit more personal question. Let's take it a step further. When's the last time you personally led someone to Christ? I'm talking about you were personally involved in sharing the gospel and God allowed you the privilege. Uh, ten more people could have spoken to them over the years before, but for some reason, when they were ready, when their hearts were softened and ready to receive Christ, you were the one who was there. And you got to personally lead someone to pray to receive Christ by faith. Well, maybe I should go a step further. Has that ever happened to you? If you, if I, I'm just going, this is from personal experience. If you have never personally shared the gospel with someone and they came to faith in Christ and you were privileged enough to be there with them and pray with them as they got saved, you you can't possibly. Imagine. Even if you think you can, you can't possibly imagine what that feels like. It will change your approach to everything. It will change your perspective on how important it is to tell people about Jesus. It will it'll change your willingness to tell people about Jesus. It will change the frequency with which you tell people about Jesus. The urgency, it will change everything. It will change how you view the body of Christ, the, the gathering of the church. It will change everything. One person, the impact of one individual coming to faith can transform the whole community. So I know I, know I need to wrap this up. But, uh, upon returning to God's people and God's place, Naomi refuses to retain that previous name. She switches from pleasant to...
to bitter because that's how she feels. She blames God for all her misfortune. She refuses to take any personal responsibility. And verse 21 is really an important acknowledgement. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this because this is important. For Naomi, she realizes her own emptiness. Look at verse 21. She's, talk, she's blaming it on God, but she, at least she realizes it. She says, I went away full. But then, then she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. So at least she realizes she's empty now. But let me tell you something really important. And I wish I, man, this is so good. I wish I could have been the one that made it up. But this is, again, my buddy Daniel up in, up in Virginia that wrote this book. He says, God does not fill people who are full of themselves. But He has more than enough spiritual bread for people who come to Him empty. Naomi finally realizes, even though she's blaming God, she's empty. She needs help. She needs something, someone from outside to fill her up because she can't do it. She is empty. If you're empty or, or frustrated or sick and tired of trying to do for yourself what only God can do in and for you, it's time to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord who gives bread in Bethlehem. It's, it's no, this is not a coincidence that this is in Bethlehem because that's where the bread of life is coming. Bethlehem. And it's no coincidence that Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. Look at the very last phrase of the last verse. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now that just seems kind of like, okay, great. But you know what it means? It's a foreshadowing. The joy of harvest time. Consider these words. This is, and then we'll be, well, we're almost done. I've got a couple of little things I need to say. You get to the end of the first chapter. Consider these words by Warren Wearsby. He says, It was barley harvest when the two widows arrived in Bethlehem, a time when the community expressed joy and praise to God for His goodness. It was spring, a time of new life and new beginnings. Naomi was about to make a new beginning for with God, it is never too late to start over again. So maybe today, you're sitting here and it's time for you to decide, just like Naomi did, it's time to repent, it's time to turn, it's time to return back to the city of God, the people of God, and maybe it's time to turn to God for the very first time. But there are some takeaways from this text that I think we need to make sure we don't miss before we finish up. There's three things, kind of main takeaways from this text I think are really helpful. The first one is that faith in God is most needed when times are more difficult. And when things are going great, 
you can fool yourself. You know, I, I'm good. God, I'll call you if I need you, but I'm all right. I'm fine. I don't need church. I don't need the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to worry about that. But if things get bad, then God, I'll call you. Well, God doesn't work that way. He's not the 911 operator. And praise the Lord, he's not. Because sometimes even that's not reliable. But I'm just saying, God doesn't operate that way. God is ever-present. He's not just on the other end of the phone and you hope they can get there in time. And so when I say, you know, the 911 operator may not be reliable, you know, there's a T-shirt. Because all T-shirts are true, right? Uh, and it said, when seconds count, police are only minutes away. You know? And, and so, and, but, but you know what? From a human standpoint... They're going as fast as they can. But they're not God. God is always present. And faith in God is most needed when times are more difficult. The second one is that God sees and knows all, everything. So it really is pointless to try to hide our sin. You know, we, we, can, we can hide our sin from people, but we can't hide it from God. So when you think about trying to hide our sin, God knows everything. So we, we, we don't want to try to hide our sin from him just like Naomi tried to do. And finally, this may be the most important one. Taking personal responsibility for our sin is necessary for repentance. See, if we, if we don't take personal responsibility and we keep trying to blame somebody else, then we'll never understand that maybe we're in the predicament we're in because of our own actions or our own lack of action or our own words. Or, you know, a lot of the problems we find in our lives, even if we don't realize it, we just bring them on ourselves. And that's a shame. Because then we'll try to blame somebody else for them. And before you start feeling sorry for yourself and thinking, well, I didn't realize I did that, uh, just remember, you weren't the first one and you won't be the last. Adam was the first one. He blamed Eve and God and Satan for all his problems. So it's not a new idea. The point of all this is, even when we consider those takeaways, <clears throat> God's about to do something. He's about to do something incredible in the lives of his people. And so we're going to see that in the, in the book of Ruth, but what we need to see in, in this church among our people, God is about to do something. He, he wants to do something incredible. His desire is to use this group of believers right here to do something amazing, to reach people with the gospel, to see people get saved, to light a fire inside His people that is never going to go out. And I believe that. 
You know how I believe it? Because I think back 13 months and I think back to when I stood right here on March the 1st, 2020 and I looked out in this room and it was near about it's pretty pretty good today but it was near about twice as many people back on March the 1st 2020 than it is now and you know why we do not battle against flesh and blood don't ever forget that the story of Ruth is going to show us what God can do but that translates to right here God can do some stuff right here and he wants to because on March the 1st 2020, you know what we were talking about? Does anybody remember? Where are we going to put all these people? We're out of room. We got to build some, can we get some, some uh, mobile units or something for some Sunday school? We're out of Sunday school space. You remember homecoming in October of 2019? Blowed out the doors and the walls. We, we didn't have anywhere for anybody to go. Y'all remember that? I remember it vividly. So March the 1st, we were talking about what are we going to do? Where, you know, we need some space. we got people everywhere. Praise the Lord. And then March 8th and March 15th happened. Well, we can't have greeting time no more. We can't do the offering plates like we did. We're going to have to do something. March 22nd, we didn't have in-person church. March 29th, we were out in, the, out in the yard, outside. I remember it in detail. It's etched on my mind. Because I remember all the momentum and all the, the good problems we were talking about where we were going to put all the people. And then everything happened. L literally, literally, all hell broke loose. I mean that exactly how I said it. Because our enemy was taking notice. Don't take your eye off the ball. This is not a, uh, this is not a statement in any way about any kind of virus or anything about it. Nothing about that. All I'm saying is God wants to do something amazing. <laughs> And I want him to. And I, th I think you do too. And I want to be a part of it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.